Hey and welcome to the College Student Success Podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping college students with mental health issues set and achieve goals for themselves to get them where they want to be. I'm your host, Derek Malenzak, and this is episode 71 of the podcast. I actually don't know if we're at 70 or 71. I apologize. I'll get it right when I post it. Uh, Welcome back, everybody. I know we are in uh, week 13 of the semester, and uh, I'm very happy to be back here with you guys this week as we look to close out the spring and get done with these goals. And uh, I hope you are sort of reaching the end of your, uh, your goal that you set in the beginning of the semester with all of us. And if not, I hope that, you know, you have... Um, a plan to finish, or you have a reason why you didn't, and that you learn something about setting the goal about yourself, and that it will help direct you in your next setting of a goal in that kind of same area. Um, I know that not everyone's going to achieve the goals, and uh, I'm going to tell a little bit about my story because um, I, I have a partial achievement, and uh I kind of want to talk a little bit about the background story. I talked uh, some of it in uh, the fourth part of the rap planning series uh, about my injury, um, but I want to talk a little bit about uh, what's happened since in terms of recovery and related to recovery uh, from mental illness. Uh, so we're going to do that, and then we're going to talk a little bit about uh, something called heuristics. Heuristics. Uh, I'm not exactly sure of the pronunciation. Uh, because I read a book, and it's sort of uh, a good thing to review because it, it influences uh, decisions that we make every single day. So I'm going to talk about a couple of different heuristics and give a nod to two uh, prominent researchers and a book that I recently read. So let's uh, get into it, shall we? Uh, so first off, yeah, I want to talk a little bit about... Um, my recovery story. So I've talked uh, with a number of different college students experiencing disability and uh, had them come on. And the reason I do that is I think people can really gain insight into their own experiences when they listen to the perspectives of, of somebody else and sort of relate the experiences and, and draw parallels or, you know, learn, you know, what not to do in some experiences. And perhaps my story can... Uh, shed some light on that. But I gave some of the background a few episodes ago. Basically, I had this goal of uh, a part of my larger overall goal for this semester was uh, to play racquetball, start playing again. I had played a long time ago and I played tennis in high school. And so I had gotten somebody to play with and played and everything was fine. This was like at the end of February, right after I didn't kind of sustain any injury. Um, but I, uh, by the fall, that was on a Friday. By the following Monday, like I couldn't use the mouse, I couldn't type with my right hand, and I didn't kind of put two and two together initially. I had had this uh, injury from a uh, from my finger that I had actually sustained when working on the previous goal, <laughs> uh, or a couple of goals ago when I was working on my online course and doing a lot of video editing. Uh, it was like a repetitive injury with my my index finger from mouse clicking and using the trackpad for a long period of time without resting. And so I I actually thought it was that initially that had kind of taken a step worse. And 
Then I ended up using my left hand for a great deal of mouse work and stuff as I was getting a, a grant ready to submit and ended up getting a lot of pain in my left hand, uh, wrist and elbow. And so I was completely incapacitated at that point. I couldn't type. And uh, that was right around when I had gone to uh, gone on my vacation for spring break with my brother and thinking, oh, this is perfect. I'll be able to you know, rest the injuries and come back and I'll be fine. And I relaxed mentally, but in the back of my head, I was a little worried because the injuries did not seem to be getting better. Uh, in some ways, they seemed worse. And I was very uncomfortable on that trip. And when I got back, I, uh, I recorded and um, kind of was still thinking at that point, oh, you know, I was making the connection that maybe it did have something to do with racquetball. But I was also, when I got back, experienced a lot of pain elsewhere, a lot of um, joint pain, um, some numbness and tingling. You know, all these were new symptoms to me. And I started to get worried that the, the wrist and elbow pain that I had was something of an internal nature. Um, and I had some reasons to think this, you know, I'd looked up, I'd had a uh, Lyme disease in the past and I looked up, uh, some of the symptoms of late stage Lyme, if it had gone undiagnosed and a lot of it was similar. And my, my father had had, had been diagnosed with late stage Lyme and had had a lot of like joint pain. And they say it localizes either in the knees or the, um, elbows and wrists. So that got me worried because I had a lot of knee pain and then, um, I started seeing a bunch of uh, specialists in response, started getting very involved in the medical model again, uh, which I don't typically have a lot of brushes with. And uh, for those people out there that do see medical doctors and even, you know, through behavioral health care is, is still run a lot through the medical model as well in terms of uh, psychiatry. Um, Jeez, I'm sorry that you have to deal with it because it really sucks. And that's somebody that has, you know, some I guess, decent insurance, and it's not super hard to get appointments. Um, but I saw a number of different specialists and had a number of things ruled out, and I was actually out of work for uh, over two weeks uh, because of this. So it was actually quite a serious thing. Um, I had uh, I saw a rheumatologist, a neurologist, and then everything eventually came back negative, and we ended up back to the original experience uh, or or diagnosis of uh, really technically what it is is tendonitis so I saw a, um, an orthopedic surgeon uh, a, my, a second one another reason why I was a little worried because the initial orthopedic who I had seen for the finger thing didn't seem to think that it was uh, tendonitis thought it was sort of uh, internal so that was another reason why I worried um, so when all of it came back and I saw a different one and they referred me to occupational therapy. And so this is where the recovery begins. Uh, and so out of all the specialists I had seen and doctors, you know, some were fine, some were, you know, not great. I wouldn't return to. Um, but when I walked into the OT's office and got evaluated by her and the questions that she asked, it jived so much with the type of work that I do with psychiatric rehabilitation. Uh, it's not very dissimilar. In fact, I share an office with an OT um, because we have an occupational therapy assistant program under our umbrella of the Department of Psychiatric Rehabilitation and Counseling Professions. So that might seem odd to some people. 
But when you actually look at the disciplines, there's an enormous amount of overlap between occupational therapy and psychiatric rehabilitation. It's just the, the disorder is different. Uh, so I've been seeing an occupational therapist and, you know, fortunately I've been able to return to work. The tendonitis has improved uh, a good deal, um, but I still have pain. I still am struggling and am very limited. Um, and it has forced me to make a lot of lifestyle changes. Um, the hardest thing about all of this was when I did think it was something internal. What it turned out was uh, the, the symptoms of like body aches and pain and knees, knee pain was uh, I just ended up getting sick with a, you know, a sort of run-of-the-mill cold uh, that coincided with all of this. So it made the symptoms look a little bit different uh, when you actually parse it out and were able to kind of relate the stories back. It was like, oh, well, each one of these now has an explanation and I'm going to get better. And for a while, when I thought that I may not get better, it really gave me the perspective of somebody that does potentially listen to the show and think that they may not get better when they're experiencing, you know, symptoms of depression or anxiety or hearing voices or mania um, or post-traumatic stress. So I just want you guys to know that, like, I have a newfound respect for what you must manage on a day-to-day -day basis. This brush, it may not seem like a big fucking deal to you guys, and it probably isn't. Uh, it, In the end, it's just tendonitis. Uh, but the range and roller coaster of emotions that I endured while coming to uh, the, the proper diagnosis and getting on the road to recovery gave me a close enough experience. Uh, you know, I hope I'm going to be okay from here on out. Um, but a close enough experience to really put <clears throat> the struggles that people endure on a day-to-day -day basis into the proper perspective for me. I feel like I'm more sensitive probably than most to disability uh, and the, the deficits that it causes and the, the loss of functionality. Um, but... I can, it's hard to, to really feel it unless you actually experience it. And uh, that is why the peer movement, the movement of people in recovery, help going into uh, work and help other people with recovery, and that's kind of what we mean in our field by the term peer, uh, is so powerful. And people respond, you know, if I have a... Um, drug addiction and I get clean, I might be motivated to go out there and help other people with drug addiction in my experience, uh, is not the same as the people that I'm now going to help, but I can relate because I have that perspective. And in some ways I did, right? I've talked about my um, recovery from alcohol abuse. So I had that perspective, but I didn't have, you know, I had that a long time. I guess I had it a little while ago. I won't say a long time. So every once in a while, um, it's good to kind of be reminded of um, why I do this and the nature of struggle that people must deal with that listen to the show. So my recovery has been, again, not linear like most of y'all out there. Uh, there's been, you know, some setbacks, but overall, um, I'm feeling better week in, week out. Um, it uh, again, it's forced me to change up my habits. So 
Uh, one of the things I notice is I spend a lot of freaking time on the computer. And, uh, you know, working, sitting in general isn't good, so I have a standing area. But even just using the, the computer, you know, forces you into a, a sitting position or the, the, a stationary position for an extended period of time. And I, um, I've been advised, you know, that is a big barrier to recovery and it just can cause you to continue to have pain. So you have to kind of like work for a little while and then change positions, get up, stretch, you know, I have all these stretches I'm doing. So I have, you know, my professional supports in place and that is my OT and my, my um, orthopedic surgeon. And that has been a godsend. You know, I'm so grateful that these types of things exist. And it just is like so odd to me that, you know, I have such a, um, a kind of a close-knit relationship to the OT community via, you know, just my my department and where I work. And then I never actually needed an OT until recently. And I'm so grateful that I have a, a really excellent one. Um, so I have that support and then I've had, you know, my family supports as well, who've just, you know, checked up on me, you know, been there for me, my wife, my family, my parents, you know, my brother, uh, and then my colleagues have just been the real source of amazing support in terms of, you know, covering for me when I've been out of work, um, you know, in terms of, uh, helping with my classes and everything else that I, you know, kind of had to go on, even though I couldn't be the one to do it. Um, so it's been weird, you know, being out, uh, being disabled and out of work. Um, and it's even when I've been out of work in the past, you know, on vacation, I've always continued to do the work that I enjoy, you know, personal research, working on this podcast, working on my online course. And all of that has grinded to a halt or grinded to a halt when those few weeks when I was out of work. And it was like, ugh, I couldn't do that stuff. And that is really the, a lot of the things I, I realized that I had done on the wellness toolbox and put in there from uh, the first part of our wrap planning session were things related to the computer or things that I used my wrist and elbow for that I couldn't. Uh, so like, you know, fantasy baseball, uh, all that's played on the computer. I, I, I basically had to take a month off and thankfully the season really hadn't started yet. So it was perfect timing. Uh, you know, uh, walking my dog, you know, I realized that the repetitive motion of like using the leash, it's like one of those, um, flexi leashes and it has a button where you can kind of like, uh, keep her, keep the, uh, animal close to you or let her go out, you know, 10, 15 feet. And I realized that repetitive motion, I had to take a break from that. And these are all the things I used to cope with stress. And I was in a mo one of the most stressful times I've had in a very, very, very long time. And I couldn't do those things. So I can now relate to people that must experience, you know, having all of these tools at their disposal that usually work for them. And then for some reason, they aren't able to use them, you know, perhaps you know, they have a lot of tools that are like community-based, you know. Um, I go to this park or I drive somewhere or just driving in general. A lot of people find that to be, you know, um, very relaxing. Go for a drive by yourself, put on music that you really like to do, open the windows. Um, so if you were to get, you know, have a relapse and get hospitalized and you're inpatient, 
all of a sudden, all these wellness tools, you know, oh, I use my tablet, you know, and uh, go on these my favorite websites. Well, you can't use your tablet at the hospital. You can't go dri- go for a drive. You can't go to your favorite park. Like, and you're supposed to be recovering when you're in a hospital. And it's like, but I can't because I don't have all of my tools, you know. It's the same parallel in, in the real world if somebody was a builder and went, and you were like, here you go. And you're like, but I don't have my tools. There's very little work that's going to get done. Uh, so that was an enormous, enormous challenge for me and um, must be for some listeners from time to time. And so now I can kind of empathize a little bit more. So I kind of you know, just wanted to tell my recovery story. Uh, and it's, you know, ongoing. I have, uh, I have uh, OT for at least another four to six weeks. Uh, and even then, I'm really going to try to stay off the computer um, mindfully, even when I do feel like I'm completely back over the summer, because I can. Uh, it, it's just good timing. It's less time I'll be on the computer. I'm, I'm teaching classes in person and taking classes, and so less online coursework is better at this point, and it, it's coming to me once the semester's over. And uh, so I just have such, I have a long-term focus of recovery. And it's funny, my OT was saying, you know, oh, I told her I, I think I did this when I was playing racquetball. And she was like, well, I could get you back. You know, we could get you back to playing racquetball again. And I just think to myself, racquetball all of a sudden really isn't that important to me. <laughs> um, being able to work every day and do the things that I enjoy with my hands, wrists, and elbows that's what's important to me. So as long as I could get back to working every day and not feeling any pain, that would be great. I don't need racquetball anymore. I'm sure there's other ways that I could sort of uh, scratch that wellness itch uh, from a, you know kind of a more social aspect. Um, so anyway, um, I hope people can get something out of that. I, I'm, I've become, as this semester has gone on, more acutely aware of how much I talk about myself. And I feel like I, I struggle with it because I, that's what I'm an expert in. And I feel like the perspectives that when I listen to people's podcasts and people tell stories and sort of uh, can relate it to the greater theme and the themes here being, you know, goal achievement and recovery, um, that they really help me. So I hope they help you. Um, but I try not to make it, you know, me, me, me. And that's why we're going to kind of focus uh, our change, our focus, shift to uh, something that I hope can help, you know, everybody here, because everybody makes decisions. <laughs> uh, some of them are sort of just very uh, banal, and it's like, oh, what am I going to have for breakfast? Um, and some of them are, you know, potentially life-changing, like where am I going to go to college, and uh, what am I going to, what career am I going to choose? So it's important, I think, when we make basic decisions or really, really important complex decisions to kind of be aware of why we make decisions because we may feel like we have a good amount of insight into our ability to make decisions. Um, In the psych rehab world, we call it self-determination and we believe very strongly in it, right? Nobody else should make decisions for you except you unless you I guess, want them to, uh, or unless you're incapacitated to and have sort of um, delegated that to somebody else. And the rap plan sort of touched on that in the more uh, formal version of that. The advanced directive really does do that. 
Um, but decision making uh, is very interesting to me. You know, it's a very a psychological price process. And I recently uh, got an audio book that uh, talked a lot about it, and it's called Thinking Fast and Slow. And it is a book by uh, Michael Lewis, who is a uh, very popular author. Um, he's written uh, many stories, and, and is, I like his writing because he kind of talks about a lot of different types of topics. You know, this was about uh, two researchers, uh, Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky, and their relationship. And though they collaborated together to come up with a lot of work uh, that has been groundbreaking on uh, decision making. And so I'm going to touch upon uh, three heuristics. And a heuristic is, uh, is sort of like a shortcut that our mind uses to make decisions. When you think about how many decisions our brains do have to make on a daily basis, and again, I, I bring it up, it's like, what do I have for breakfast? You know, should I do this now or should I do it later? You know, for this time that I have right now, of these 10 things, what should I do first, second, third? You know, very, very complex network of decisions. Um, our brains potentially can get fatigued having to do this. So over time, it develops shortcuts uh, in terms of like simple rules that usually work uh, in order to simplify the decision-making process. Uh, the other author that I've talked about uh, a good deal, uh, Nassim Taleb, um, he talks about heuristics a, a great deal as well. Uh, and it's sort of, you know, a double-edged sword in terms of like, for the greater good, heuristics are actually very useful and more often than not get the job done for the more mundane, everyday types of decisions. Um, but it is important to be aware of sort of the reasons we make decisions. So I'm going to talk about three different heuristics today and why they might help you in terms of um, being a college student, having goals, and wanting to achieve them. So I'm going to talk about anchoring, uh, the anchoring heuristic, the availability heuristic, and representativeness. And I'm going to give some strategies, uh, well, talk about some strategies as to how to avoid or sort of become more aware. You know, you can't avoid um, biases in judgment, um, but you can uh, get better at recognizing them and therefore sort of in the future make more unbiased decisions uh, that are sort of better for the greater good uh, in terms of solving whatever the problem is at hand. All right, so anchoring. Uh, so I'm going to be using, you know, not the most uh, peer-reviewed resource, but I'm going to be using uh, Wikipedia for a lot of this because um, these are sort of like, you know, pretty straightforward types of things that um, a, a good deal of people agree on at this point. Um, there's not a lot of uh, super amount of contradiction. So anchoring, so I'm going to read here for a, limit, for a second from uh, Wikipedia. Anchoring and adjustment is a heuristic used in many situations where people estimate. According to Tversky and Kahneman's original description, it involves starting from a readily available number, the anchor, and shifting either up and down to reach the answer that seems plausible. Uh, so the, the example that I remember from uh, the book is he... Uh, the authors, not the author, the, the researchers gave uh, participants 
a sequence of mathematical computations. So it was either, so first it was like multiply one times two times three times four times five times six times seven times eight. Uh, and then, so they did that for one group and asked them, you know, really quickly to estimate what the, the product would be. And that's hard to do. And because they didn't give them a lot of time, it forced them to estimate. And then another group of people, they gave uh, the same exact uh, mathematical computation except backwards. So this time they asked them to estimate what 8 times 7 times 6 times 5 times 4 times 3 times 2 times 1 is. And for people that know math, uh, it's the same either way. You know, multiplication, 7 times 8 is the same as 8 times 7. Uh, but the way the numbers were presented to people caused them to anchor differently. So when you're starting 1 times 2, and you start to make those computations, even though you won't get to the end, it's like, okay, 2 times 3 is 6, 6 times 4 is 24. You're going to kind of anchor at a lower point than the person that starts with 8 times 7 is 56, 56 times 6 is, you know, whatever. Um, think about, uh, you know, how negotiations go, you know, a car salesman, you know, and a skilled negotiator are going at it. And they're talking about a car that, you know, the sticker price is $30,000. So that's sort of the initial anchor. And the, the skilled negotiator comes in and they're not going to make a counteroffer of $29,000 <laughs> because there's so little room to negotiate there. They're going to they're gonna want to anchor this negotiation way down lower. So they might throw out a purposely lower number. Oh, there's no way I'm going to give you more than twenty two. And it's like, what? You know, the car salesman might scoff at that and be like, there's no way you're going to get it. But at least now they're negotiating on the skilled negotiator's anchor of 22. And it's a lot easier to get a predator price from that guy's perspective than it is if they were using the $30,000 sticker price anchor that the salesman is trying to use. All right. So that is is sort of anchoring. So if you think about um, when you have to make decisions... Uh, especially estimation type of decisions. Um, think about the starting point, right? Sometimes the starting point can be just very arbitrary and you might unnaturally anchor your own opinion um, b based on that original un uh, potentially arbitrary number, all right? So this could be a, a reason, you know, you might feel like, oh, I'm going really, you know, out there against the grain with, with what I think, but it might just be because the initial number sort of is, is stuck in your mind and is anchoring you to something else. All right. So that's anchoring. Uh, the next one I'm going to talk about is the availability heuristic. <clears throat> All right. So availability. Uh, availability is the ease, <coughs> excuse me, with which a particular idea can be brought to mind. When people estimate how likely or how frequent an event is on the basis of its availability, they are using the availability heuristic. So the example that was used in the book, uh, Thinking Fast and Slow, that Kahneman and Tversky came up with was getting people to estimate uh, how many uh, time, how many words in the English language began with the letter K versus how many had the third letter <clears throat> as the letter K. So people start thinking, you know, racking their brain. And again, they have to estimate, but they can only, they have to do it quickly. And it's a lot easier for them 
most times, most people, to come up with words that begin with the letter K than it is to come up with words where the third letter is K. So they make the judgment and decide, make this decision, you know what, there's more that begin with the letter K, which is actually not true. Um, it's just whatever the words are that are available to that person at that particular time um, become what's important. <laughs> and that becomes, you know, uh, it becomes uh, unfairly important, I guess it is, weighted un unequally. Um, and so this is a heuristic to be aware of because when you are considering decisions, the ones that are available to you, the ones that you've considered before, the ones you may have tried before, the ones that may have been suggested to you by somebody else, potentially somebody else that you you really respect, those are going to be the options that stand out to you. And they may not necessarily be the best ones, you know? So we have to be aware of when we use the availability heuristic to make decisions to know that our horizon may not be as expanded as we even think it is. And we may just be relying on um, sort of a recency bias to make a decision that could potentially, you know, not require that type of, um, you know, maybe like require some deeper thought. And then the last one is that I'm going to talk about today is the representativeness bias. Uh, so representative heuristic is seen when people use categories, for example, when deciding whether or not a person is a criminal. Uh, it's sort of stereotyping in a sense. Um, an individual thing that has a high representativeness for a category if it is very similar to a prototype of that category. So... Let me give you an example that Tversky and Kahneman gave in the book. Um, this one is a part of the representativeness heuristic. Um, the reason why this one is a big problem is it, if people ignore base rates, you know, and I'll explain what that means in, in, in a second. They gave uh, this simple explanation of a woman and called it the Linda problem. So here's Linda. Linda is a 31-year-old, single, outspoken, and very bright woman. She majored in philosophy. As a student, she was deeply concerned with issues of discrimination and social justice, and also participated in anti-nuclear demonstrations. Uh, people reading this description then ranked the likelihood of different statements about Linda. Uh, so among these included, Linda is a bank teller, and Linda is a bank teller and is active in the feminist movement. Okay, so there were, so people were asked to rate which was more likely based on that description that was given about Linda. You know, she's 31, she's, you know, participated in these demonstrations, she's outspoken. Uh, so what is more likely? Linda is a bank teller or Linda is a bank teller and active in the feminist movement? People in the study favored the second one. They thought that it was more likely that Linda was a bank teller and in the feminist movement. But if you're thinking about this with a very, very logical mindset, you are thinking, you know what? No, there's no way that's the case 
because that ignores the base rate. The fact that in simple probability terms, there are there's no way you can argue um, that there are more bank tellers out there worldwide in general than there are bank tellers active in the feminist movement. Similarly, you can also argue that there are more female bank tellers out there just in general worldwide than there are female bank tellers in the feminist movement. See, it makes sense um, because there's always going to be some proportion of bank tellers that are not active in the feminist movement. So the description of Linda kind of diverted people away from the the actual question, which is which was more more likely here. And so all of this description about her being outspoken and participating in anti-nuclear demonstrations is all kind of fluff. It's all meant to distract. Um, so we don't want to fall for the representativeness heuristic and being like, well, you know, Linda looks like she's active in the feminist movement by all this description about her. So that's probably what she is. At the base base root of this problem, there's much more likelihood that she's just simply a bank teller because there's just more bank tellers out there than there are bank tellers active in the feminist movement. So I really liked that example. And, um, you know, this is this can be helpful too uh, for a various number of reasons in, in terms of... Um, goal setting and goal achievement. So let's look at, let's close with some strategies here as to like how we can avoid falling into some of these traps. Uh, again, like some of these heuristics are, are very helpful on a day-to-day basis for making, you know, quick decisions that aren't going to have a lot of um, impact either way. But when you're thinking about m- more critical decisions, you know, what should you be trying to do to avoid um you know, falling prey to these heuristics. So when it comes to anchoring, right, this idea of being like fixed on a number when trying to estimate or negotiate, you want to, first off, be aware of those anchors if you are trying to make an estimation, right? If you're trying to make an estimation, really focus on the facts and not what is trying to kind of cloud the mind as like some arbitrary number that somebody throws out. Recognize its arbitrariness. <laughs> That's totally not a word. <laughs> Just made that up. Um, and kind of be, stick to your stick to your guns. Stick to your principles in terms of like coming up with a number that you feel is is uh, a better estimate. And if you're negotiating, avoid it by aiming high, you know, be the skilled negotiator or aim low, depending on what you're trying to do here. Um, Shoot for the moon, you know, and I think about this from a a fantasy baseball perspective in terms of like when negotiating trades, Um, you initially want to ask for more than you think you might get. Um, but not so much more that you are being unreasonable and the person doesn't even take you seriously or give you the time of day. So it's a very fine line. You got to be aware of that. You can't be obnoxious about it. So aim high because that will increase your leverage. Uh, when it comes to the availability heuristic, right? This idea of like, oh, I think there's more words with the letter K in it because those are, that's the, the words that are available to me. Um, 
or I think that, you know, these are all my options because these are the only ones that are available to me because these are the only ones I've tried. Um, brainstorming, you know. I used to teach a formal way to brainstorm uh, in the, well, actually a formal way to make decisions. Uh, brainstorming was the, like, foundational step in, in the early part of the process. It's like we think we may know what, what, our, what we want to do when we think, all right, uh, how should I approach this? You know, um, but you'd be amazed at how event. Sometimes it's not the first or second uh, thought that comes to your mind that ends up being the best. Sometimes it does require you to sit there and really think, and eventually come up with one. It's like, oh, you know, I wouldn't have thought about this approach unless I had really considered it or like a combination, you know, you kind of combining two ideas together um, and then trying it out. So, you know, use don't be afraid of trial and error. So availability comes down to just as far as, you know, how much can you expand your mind? And again, sometimes this has to be done in a short amount of time, I'm aware. Uh, and then the representativeness heuristic, the, the Linda problem, really stop and think critically, right? These things are not too difficult to spot as long as you stop and think. It's like, wait a second. There's no way there could be more of this than that. It's just the base rates. Think about, you know, what is more logical? And you should be able to avoid this problem. So... Hopefully you guys found this helpful today. Um, I kind of wanted to give you the, you know, the personal side as well as some of the more practical, you know, this is something you can use when making decisions in college, you know, from decisions, you know, an example might be like what you, you know, you have given a paper to write. Um, and so for this paper, it's, it's a very open-ended type of assignment where you are given a lot of liberty to decide what you want to write on, right? And the teacher in explaining the assignment gives you a couple of examples. So it's like, well, you could write about, here's some examples you might want to write about this or this or this, but in reality, you can write about anything within, you know, list discipline and then gives you some, some guidelines. So you might be like, oh, you know, I don't know what to do, you know. So this is going to explain, you know, two of these heuristics. So thinking about it, you might initially start brainstorming and being like, well, I can only come up with things. You might find yourself only being able to come with the, up with things that relate to the examples that the instructor gave you and put on the paper. You know, it almost would have been better if they didn't give an example because now you're sort of anchored to those and because it's like, well, if the instructor gave these examples, they probably think that these are good things to use. Um, and it might hinder you in terms of availability in, in thinking, well, I don't want to use one of these examples. I do want to go and branch out on my own and do, be creative. But I, all I can do is generate, when I'm brainstorming, solutions that relate back to these because I was sort of anchored with them. So being able to kind of recognize these and be like, no, I am falling for some uh, heuristics here. And they're not really helping me in this case. So let me uh, let me back it up a bit. Let me, you know, brainstorm a little harder. You know, I think it's good to do it on paper, personally. And, uh, you know, work through this a little more critically. All right. 
your home exercise this week is to think about these heuristics and note when you're using them. Try and see if you can find, think about decisions you've made, and they could be very mundane decisions, right? Um, you know, what am I going to have for lunch today? Uh, I think I'm going to have sandwich. And you think about it a little bit more critically later, and you're like, you know what? The only reason I, de- the only, yeah, the reason I decided to make the decision to have a sandwich today is because that's all I've been eating for the last five days. And so when I initially went through my mind of like, what are my options? The most available one to me was sandwich. <laughs> uh, so like, that's the kind of thing I want you to do. Not, uh, you know, this might not actually help you towards your specific goal this week. And I want you to keep working on your goal as well. My goal is kind of become recovering from my, the consequences of my first goal this semester, which was, you know, playing racquetball. Um, so, but I think this can help you from a long-term perspective in come terms of becoming a better decision maker and not allowing uh, fluff to get in the way of the, what the true things that are important are. So hope you guys found this helpful today. I really enjoyed uh, having this conversation with you guys and I can't wait to be back with you guys next week. Peace.